National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. We're going to tackle a really unique topic today, the kind of topic that national security nerds like me love to think about. That topic is arms embargoes. The two guests we have on our show today will help us to better understand the world of arms sales and arms embargoes and why they matter significantly for global security. Our first guest is Professor Jen Spindle. Jen Spindle is an assistant professor of political science and international affairs at the University of New Hampshire. Her research interests include international security, foreign policy, and the conventional arms trade. She previously served on the governing board of the International Security Studies section of the International Studies Association. Spindle's dissertation, Beyond Military Power, Signaling, and the Conventional Weapons Trade, won the 2018 Kenneth Waltz Award for Best Dissertation in International Security from APSA's International Security Section. Her research has, has appeared in Security Studies, the Journal of Global Security Studies, Armed Forces and Society, and Environmental Communication. Her work has also appeared in the European Leadership Network, in War on the Rocks, and the Washington Post's Monkey Cage. Spindle received her Bachelor of Art, received her Bachelor of Arts in Peace and Conflict Studies from Colgate University, and her Doctorate in Political Science from the University of Minnesota. She previously held fellowship positions at Dartmouth College and George Washington University. Our second guest has been on National Security this week previously to discuss the South China Sea. Dr. Raymond Cole is an expert in international security and East Asia. He is currently a political scientist with the RAND Corporation, one of the top national security think tanks in America. He recently published not one, but two books, Following the Leader, which covered military alliances, and another book called Contests of Initiative, which took a deep dive into China's maritime gray zone strategy. Dr. Kuo's other research has appeared in International Security, the Journal of Conflict Resolution, War on the Rocks, The National Interest, The Diplomat, and others. Dr. Kuo is a tenure-track professor at Fordham University and the University of Albany in SUNY. He previously worked for the United Nations, the National Democratic Institute, and the Democratic Progressive Party in Taiwan. Dr. Kuo was recently appointed as the director of RAND's Who Taiwan Policy Initiative. Dr. Kuo holds a doctorate from Princeton University. Professor Jen Spindle, welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you so much for having me. And Dr. Raymond Kuo, welcome back to the show. You were on some time ago when we had a great conversation about the South China Sea. Yeah, it's good to be back. Uh, so I want to thank the two of you for joining us today. The, and you, the two of you recently co-authored this paper. This didn't come out that long ago, so I'm excited to have you on the show already. Uh, the title of that paper is The Unintended Consequences of Arms Embargoes, and it was published in something called Foreign Policy Analysis, a pretty pretty uh, significant journal. What brought the two of you together to work on this paper? What, what was the catalyst for this research effort? And, and Jen, maybe we start with you. Um, so I, uh, I had to ask Raymond when, when we met because I sort of feel like I've known him for such a long time and, you know, that we've been talking about arms embargoes and arms transfer ideas forever. And I think you remembered where we met. Is that right? 
think so. I thought it was the um, was it a caribou coffee that no longer exists on 50th in France? I think oh. that was. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, that sounds about right. Um, I miss I miss caribou coffee having yeah. left Minnesota. Um, yeah, I, I remember sort of asking you for all sorts of advice about dissertations and research and and job market things in Minnesota. Um, so I think that this this might have come from that conversation. I think so. Yeah, I just moved to Minnesota and, and left academia. So I was like, oh, sure, I, I'm here. I'm trying to like meet new people. And so we got into a conversation about your work on on uh, uh, arms transfers and embargoes and the data from uh, CIPRI, uh, the, oh, I can never remember the acronym, the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. Ooh, okay, yeah. <laughs> So what was the specific trigger for, for starting working on this project? Because uh, there's a lot of research that had to go into this to get all the data sets and to anal- analyze all of it. So what, what was it this topic that really sparked the interest for the two of you? I think I had been working with this this big data set from CIPRI, the Stockholm Peace Research Institute, and uh, for my dissertation. And I'd spent time sort of um, looking at who had sold what types of weapons to whom, but I was just completely overwhelmed by the data that I had and, and what to do with it. Um, and so we were able to sort of partner up and bring both of our sort of substantive and methodological skills sort of together to try and figure out what are we actually seeing in this massive data set. Um, and I think we were able to use, you know, use Raymond's um skills in, in coding and, and methods to really use the data in a way that no one else had done quite as fully yet. Yeah, the PhD process is very much a prolonged six, seven year hazing process. And so <laughs> I didn't like coding or math when I started, but damn it, I had to love it by the end of it. So <clears throat> getting to play with new data set was, was always, I think, always kind of fun. Six years ago, me, would we'd be horrified at that, that phrase, but you know, there it is. Uh, but, you know, for me, a lot of my work has been focusing on sort of the security relationships that states form with each other, uh, either cooperative or hostile. A lot of my work focuses on military alliances or military exercises, but arms sales is like kind of right in there. You know, countries can act a lot like teenagers in a lot of ways. Um, you know, it's like, did I get the <laughs> cool new toy from my friend? Or if I didn't, what does that say about me? I remember my a number of my papers actually were inspired by my sister. She used to make those plastic uh, friendship bracelets mm. um and of course you know it takes some effort and they aren't they aren't expensive but they, you know they cost a little bit of money that she paid out of her allowance and so she didn't give it to everybody and the fact that she had to reassure certain friends no 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 just because i didn't give it to you doesn't mean i don't value you as a friend and i was like ah that's that's an issue <laughs> you can see it's the same sort of dynamic with alliances with exercises with arm sales that kind of thing Absolutely. I mean, I think I, I've joked probably too many times that my dissertation and now book manuscript is really just the mean girls theory of arms sales, you know, sort of who's a frenemy with whom and, and you know, what is the love triangle that's currently happening. So I think we both sort of shared that uh, sort of snarky interest in states having relationships uh, and, and taking that angle into this topic. So it is a really complex topic, and I want to get into it, but I have one other question for you, Professor Spindle. You've definitely concentrated a good bit of your academic research and writing on arms sales, <clears throat> covering foreign military sales, uh, the gray arms market, and certainly the black arms market. What, what drew you to study this topic? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I think I was sort of drawn to what seemed like puzzles about these types of relationships 
that were created by arms transfers. And it, it seemed to me like states were selling weapons to others, even when the weapons weren't useful for conflict scenarios. And so that sort of struck me as a weird observation. And so I started with this data set that, um, that Raymond and I ended up using on, on some global arms sales. But I also did a lot of archive work in the U.S. National Archives um, where I was actually reading sort of what policymakers were thinking and, and saying to one another about selling arms. And I realized that it was quite a complicated process, and I was sort of really drawn to that complication. And, and so what I think I sort of tried to figure out was that states were sending and seeking arms because they wanted to send signals about political support right, or indicate that they were angry or they disapproved of their partner and wouldn't sell arms. And so most of my career has been spent trying to figure out how states use the weapon sales to send those signals and messages. Um, and then I was able to really sort of double down in that and, and get quite more interested by doing some field work at some of the major um, international weapon shows. So, um, you know, places where the big companies like Lockheed Martin, BAE, uh, Northrop Grumman, you know, display their arms on like three football fields length of space. And there are government officials and military officials sort of walking around looking at things. And it was just this fascinating mix of like a car show dynamic, but also kind of high school because you wanted to be cooler than the person next to you. Um, and so this giant marketing event just really sort of drew me in. Uh, and I and I wanted to um, explore more. So I think, you know, it was initially that sort of puzzle of this seems kind of weird and then um, getting to go to the, the arms exhibitions made me sort of certain that, yeah, this is something I want to study more. Yeah. And, and Dr. Quo, how about you? What previous research have you done looking into arms sales? I know you, you've written extensively on uh, Taiwan's purchases of arms and whether or not it makes sense for their actual defense interests. But what else have you looked at? Uh, that, similar to what, uh, to what Jen was saying, um, how do, you know, how do arms sales signal or not signal intent? I mean, for Taiwan and specifically, right, they don't, or they used to have a formal military alliance with the United States. They no longer do. And so they're kind of scrabbling around for any sort of political signal that the United States or Japan or European countries send to them. And so, you know, you have to look at the non-formal or the maybe less formal relationships that they have. Um, arm sales are definitely among them. Leadership visits, uh, 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 military exercises, um, kind of breaking down the sort of formal relationship that you have and trying to say, okay, well, can we read the tea leaves, right? You know, we talk often about Russia or China having to read the, the tea leaves there, but other countries do that with us, right? Uh, Taiwan certainly does that with us, trying to figure out, like, does this arms sale, if they sell us F-16s, does that say something versus selling us an F-35? And on the United States' side, it's mostly like, we don't care, <laughs> or we have certain security concerns about it, or uh, <clears throat> or other politics, but... You know, other countries read into our politics in the same way that we read into theirs. And so this is, uh, that was what always kind of fascinated me about this. Yeah, that, that those are fascinating insights from, from, from both of you. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are Professor Jen Spindle and Dr. Raymond Kuo, and we're discussing arms embargoes. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so before we get into this specific topic of arms embargoes, I'd like to ask about global arms sales in general. And when I was serving as U.S. Naval Attaché at the U.S. Embassy in Helsinki, Finland, I know the United States carries out what is called foreign military sales through the Defense Security Cooperation Agency. 
And in 22 for, 2022, for instance, the U.S. sold weapons to foreign buyers through the Foreign Military Sales Program uh, w- with a total of something in the neighborhood of $52 billion in revenue that came back. Uh, I know that uh, there was a spike globally, something in the neighborhood of $83.5 billion in global military sales during 2020. Is that, uh, do I have my figures right on that? I mean, just an enormous amount of money that's being spent all around the world to buy, buy weapons. Uh, can you can the two of you give our listeners some sense of the scale of the global arms trade after having looked at this more intensely? Um, absolutely. I guess I'll, I'll take the first stab at this. So one of the fascinating things that I learned about the global arms trade is that that dollar figure often actually underestimates the amount of stuff that is being sent around the world. Um, so the U.S. often uh, just gives weapons as a sort of gift to others. Um, And it often offers uh, very favorable credit financing terms. Um, So it's uh, it's often really hard to match, you know, the dollar amount to what are the specifics going around. But what we do know is that um, U.S. companies far and away sold the most weapons um, and and have historically. Um, In 2021, the U.S. accounted for 51 percent of all arms sales across the globe. Um, The next highest was China at 18 percent. So the U.S. is the largest arms supplier. Um, the all arsenal of, of democracy, right? The arsenal exactly. of democracy. <laughs> exactly, right? And, I mean, it's so 51% was the U.S. All other countries besides China were in single digits. Um, the sort of estimated dollar value for 2021 was $592 billion just of sales, right? So not necessarily revenue. And that's a slight uptick from previous years, but the arms trade has been above $500 billion globally since at least 2016. Wow. Um, so it's this really massive industry, really only dominated by a, a handful of players. Um, if we sort of look at who's buying arms, um, between 2017 and 2021, the top buyers were India, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Australia, and China. And together, they bought 40% of all of the arms sold in that period. Um, and I'll give you just a sort of brief flavor of sort of what they were buying and then uh, pass it over to, to Raymond. But um, the U.S. sells most of its arms to Saudi Arabia, um, and that included things like F-15 jets, a lot of different types of missiles, and M1 tanks. India, one of the top buyers, actually bought most of its arms from Russia and France. And that included, interestingly, six submarines from France, um, an Su-30 aircraft from uh, Russia, as well as missiles and helicopters. Egypt, which was also in the top five buyers, also buying largely from Russia and France, um, frigates from France, a lot of missiles from France, and two submarines from Germany, interestingly. Um, you know, I think one of the things that makes the arms industry so interesting to study is that it includes things like advanced fighter jets, like the F-35, as well as these sort of much smaller and less advanced weapons like armored vehicles. And then everything in between. So this is really this massive, global, very diverse industry. Yeah, and I think, you know, right now we're seeing a little bit of, sh- of a shift in this industry. Um, you know, it's Russia used to be one of the largest suppliers, but especially in the wake of the Ukraine war, uh, the attractiveness of Russian uh, arms has just fallen dramatically. They're just on the battlefield proven not to be effective against right. Russia. Right. I think India had an order of like uh, was a K seventeen uh, helicopters, uh, which they just recently canceled. Um, <clears throat> and so this is actually kind of an opening for India and China to kind of jump in and seize per- certain parts of the market. Now they're not going to seize the high end part of the market where American and European firms dominate, but they can certainly seize kind of the lower mid level tier uh, of you know 
they might not be the most advanced things, but they're good enough for most countries and adversaries that they face. Uh, I think the other big thing about arms sales is well, kind of going back to what we discussed earlier. Is, does it, you know, demonstrate a political commitment? And then technically, no, right? This is just a market transaction. Like I'm selling to you and you can always go somewhere else. It's like buying stuff at the supermarket, perhaps almost literally to some extent. Um, but, you know, it kind of depends on the seller. There was a there was an article out by Roseanne Mc, uh, McManus and I think uh, Mark Neiman in 2019 that said that, you know, if we look at major powers for the United States, arms sales are the biggest indication that it actually supports a client state. Uh, more so than I think alliances or leadership visits. It's arms sales that, you know, if we sell you this, then it means that we have your back. And so, as we mentioned earlier, it's a country like Taiwan, they really, really have to hold on to that belief because it's the only thing that they've got. Um, there's also issues of reputational entrapment. Uh, when India claimed that it shot down an F-16, the United States spent, spared no expenses saying, no, 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 no. We've tracked every single F-16. We know you guys didn't shoot down an F-16. In part because... <clears throat> You know, we have uh, the United States has a certain reputation for its arms. And if it can, if a Pakistani F-16 can be shot down by a Russian piece of equipment, well, some of that half a trillion dollar sales out there eh, might be diverted in one way or another, same way that we're seeing Russian sales being diverted towards other countries. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And, and we should highlight the fact that in arms sales, part of the value of it is not just the missile system or the jet or whatever, it's also all of the maintenance support that goes along with it, all of the training, you know, all of those things are part of the process, right? Yeah, that's a huge part of it. And I think a, a really good example that we're seeing right now is related to the war in Ukraine, where yeah. the U.S. has, you know, offered Patriot missile systems and is now training Ukrainian soldiers in Oklahoma, right, on right. how to use that system. So it's not just a, here's our fancy weapons, it's, you know, we're also going to teach you how to use it and then offer support, maintenance, and, and repairs. So it's a a long-term business as well. Yeah. yeah. And strangely enough, uh, sometimes a vehicle for sort of society-to-society relationships. I remember at the, excuse me, at the beginning of the Ukraine war, because um, the Ukrainians were, had been embedded with, I think, the Washington State National Guard. And so because of technology, uh, you know, just cell phones, WhatsApp, all the rest of it, I recall that, like, the Ukrainian soldier contacted his former friend in Washington state to say, hey, this Javelin missile is not working. Can you walk me through it? So there was like live tech support. Uh, where one guy was providing live tech support from Washington state for a missile that was actively being fired in, Ukra uh, in Ukraine. I guess we call that public diplomacy, right? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> hey, right. One other topic I want to ask about, because uh, it's, it's linked to both the Russian invasion of Ukraine and uh, the, this arms, uh, arms deals, arms sales. Uh, days ahead of Russia's invasion of, uh, of Ukraine, Poland, which had ordered, had been asking for uh, 250 of uh, the General Dynamics produced M1 Abrams tanks. Uh, they, they got approved for that. Uh, it's about a $6 billion purchase. Uh, that's pretty significant stuff because the, uh, that means that the Poland, which has, I think, one of the biggest militaries on the European continent at this point and growing larger because of the Russia invasion of Ukraine, uh, they want to get rid of their older uh, Soviet-made stuff. They're ha I think they're happy to push that over across the border to give to the Ukrainians because they're upgrading to a dramatically better piece of equipment for armored warfare in the M1 Abrams. Uh, is that the kind of thing that you know people should be aware of, that these kinds of deals happen all the time? 
I think so. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think one of the sort of interesting things that's related to our paper as well is the way that countries sort of buy in blocks. So Poland has all of this old Soviet equipment. And quite understandably, it's taking a look at the war in Ukraine and saying, wow, these tanks are probably not going to do very well. Let's sort of get rid of them and upgrade to um, U.S. or or more Western bloc type systems. Um, You know, Poland's an interesting case as well because it also offered its old Soviet planes to Ukraine as well, um, thinking that it could sort of offload those and then get better planes from the U.S. So I I think that that process does happen, um, but might be less on the radar than some of the sort of big ticket sales that we often hear about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's this interesting sort of intra-allied dynamic going on as well. I feel, personally speaking, that Leopard 2 tanks are actually better for most smaller states because, I mean, the M1 Abrams, it's a fantastic system. Uh, it's it's probably the most survivable tank out there. It also guzzles gas. Uh, like it, just, it drinks <laughs> like a fish. Um, and so unless you have a United States, right, with a logistics tail that's three miles long for every single tank, it's really not that great for smaller countries that can't provide that logistics tail. Uh, Leopard 2 is much better for that. It's much more efficient. Yeah. But it's also made by Germany. And so right now what we're seeing is a certain disappointment, I think, within Eastern Europe of like, well, Germany is not as forward-leaning on the Ukraine war, which is clearly an issue for us on the, on the borderline with Russia, um, <clears throat> as we were hoping. So we have to start diversifying our supplies even within our own alliance bloc. And we have to take into account the fact that uh, the arms industry globally, those are, for the most part, civilian corporations that are producing this equipment. Their ability to build that stuff, especially high-end things like aircraft and and tanks, uh, it takes a while to build those things. It's not like an assembly line at, you know, the Ford plant or whatever. I mean, it takes a long time because you only have so many people skilled enough to build a tank, especially something like an M1 Abrams or even a Leopard 2 uh, main battle tank. Uh, so the Germany right now has a high demand, but a small capacity to produce. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. For sure. And I think we're actually seeing that um, much more widespread than anyone ever anticipated. Um, I was listening to an interview with um, someone from NAMO, which is a Norwegian ammunition company, um, that has sent a lot of uh, sort of ammunition and mortar type things to Ukraine. And they said their arms orders are up more than 20 times what they were previously, which they had never, ever seen ever. And so the, the, the NAMO representative was saying, this is a real dilemma. Do we build a new factory? But that'll take three years to get up and running. And they're not even producing the M1 Abrams or the Leopard. And so if you think about just how long it takes to build, produce, source, and then produce at scale, um, you know, this is not a snap your fingers and ask the U.S. for tanks and they get, you know, delivered overnight process. So that's a good, that's a great way to set up uh, stepping into the arms embargo question, because a lot of what we just talked about, about how the normal foreign military sales work, these arms transfers amongst friends, you know, allies and friends and whatnot, now we're going to get into the side of the question that, that is really fascinating. That's the arms embargo. So so what exactly is an arms embargo? How should people think about arms embargoes as matters of national security policy and maybe more broadly, you know, foreign policy, right? Yeah, so um, an arms embargo is usually when a group 
um, sometimes a single state, but usually a group of states and often a, a big body like the European Union or the UN just collectively decide to stop selling arms to a certain state or a certain actor and try to prevent others from stopping uh, from selling as well. Um, and so it was really a way to sort of cut off this supply spigot. Um, there's a lot of different reasons to impose an arms embargo. We found a lot of them had to do with human rights violations. You know, so if a government were abusing its people or doing bad things in a conflict, right, it might get slapped with an embargo. Um, but since the weapons industry is global, you know, states can often try and find ways to still get weapons, which complicates thinking about it as a tool of national security. I mean, from a U.S. perspective, an embargo can try to control where and how U.S. weapons are used. Um, stopping the sale and preventing future purposes in, in future purchases, excuse me, means that in theory, U.S. weapons won't be used for things the U.S. doesn't support. And so, uh, it's a good recent example is the war Saudi Arabia is ra- uh, waging in Yemen. You know, at various points of the past few years, Congress has discussed an embargo, vetoing an embargo, overriding a veto on an embargo. Um, especially as there's been new information about the human rights violations, and then especially after the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, the U.S.-based journalist who was murdered at the Saudi embassy in Turkey. Um, And so the U.S. temporarily put an embargo on Saudi Arabia, as did France, Germany, and the U.K. They all lifted their embargoes soon after, and Germany was the only one that kept it in place for a couple of years. So, you know, on the one hand, an embargo is a way for states to try to control how and when their weapons are used, um, but not always very effectively. And so it can get really tricky to figure out, you know, what's going on with an embargo um, because there are a lot of arms manufacturers. And so it's hard to change policy of a state by putting in this embargo, right? Unless everyone agrees, okay, we won't sell. And so as a coercive tool, you know, in theory it should work, but I think we see um, a lot of difficulties in forcing behavioral change with arms embargoes. Um, You know, you can try to say no weapons unless you do this, but unless all of the weapons producers agree, there's usually going to be some complication there. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it's a real question about how you measure embargo effectiveness. Trying to say, like, are, have you completely stopped the flow? For many questions, is the right is the right sort of metric, uh, but it's also the hardest one to achieve. You know, I think we found that the most effective embargoes were UN ones because, well, the, the major security actors, uh, the P5, uh, they're also the major arms uh, manufacturers. But even there, I think Russia in particular uh, would undercut like embargoes that itself had voted for. Um, similar thing happened with the EU. France would join in support of the EU <laughs> embargo and then keep selling weapons. It's like, ah, that's that's an interesting strategy. So completely stopping is really difficult. Um, but another measure of embargo effectiveness could be opportunity costs. This goes back to, I think, David Baldwin and his, his concept of, uh, of just overall sanctions that you may not stop the flow, but you're going to make it more expensive for them to get the same thing. And so that kind of difference in marginal cost, that's the efficacy of a, of an arms embargo. Problem is of course, like if you're a civilian in Yemen getting killed by a weapon, like it, that marginal cost doesn't really matter to you very much. No. Um, and it's also still like using marginal costs to try to co- uh, coerce, another, coerce another state. It has limited effectiveness versus just stopping the full supply. I noted in your paper that the two key questions you decided to address after doing all of that research was, was number one, how and to what extent do states, uh, do nations, you know, evade arms embargoes? 
And number two, do embargoes alter the pattern, quantity, or quality of weapons being sent to the sanctioned countries? Uh, why did you choose those two questions? Uh, can you give us kind of an overview on what you found on those two topics? Sure. So, you know, the existing research uh, before ours was really effective at picking up bilateral trade flows. You, you know, you could see like, well, if the U.S. doesn't want uh, Iran to get oranges, do we see a drop in orange sales to Iran? But, I mean, the issue here is that Iran's not just going to sit there. If they want to get oranges, they're going to go somewhere else to get those oranges if they can. And so arms are the same way. We know that states can evade sanctions, <clears throat> but the question is, how do they do so and how successful are they? And so this data set that... Um, that uh, uh, Professor Spindle and I were working on, one of the kind of nice features of it is that it doesn't just collapse all the weapons down to like a single dollar value. Instead, we can actually look at the specific systems. It says, uh, you know, the United States bought 200 Stinger missiles uh, from Austria, uh, which I believe actually did happen. Um, and I think we were trying to get them out of the hands of the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. And, and so this is one of those things like, well, now that we know the weapon system itself, we can start asking, okay, well, did Afghanistan get other anti-aircraft man pads, for example? Did they substitute it in some way? Did they get the same quality or, or a, a lesser quality? Because part of the issue is that these weapons are reasonably effective for what most militaries need, and they last a really, really long time. So yeah. if you can substitute those systems and maybe get something that's just good enough, well, arms embargoes, we think, is you know how your kind of middling effectiveness might be even less effective than the general literature things. And I think, you know, when we were looking at, you know, how do states evade, evade sanctions and, and why, you know, we already knew that states can look to the black market, right, and try to buy illicit arms. Um, but that usually works best for smaller weapons like rifles or ammunition, you know, that are just harder to track and easier to hide. So I think we were interested in figuring out, is there a same process for these bigger major conventional weapons? We were also really interested in this idea of busting through an embargo, right? So Russia sort of voting for a U.N. embargo and then selling anyway, right? Or France doing the same. And so, you know, even if the U.S. cuts off the orange supply to Iran, right, maybe there are others that are more than happy to give oranges, um, especially if that other orange supplier wants to cause problems for the U.S. Uh, and so I think what we were sort of really interested in was exploring the different ways and avenues that states have for getting oranges, beyond that bilateral tie that might have been cut off at some point. Yeah. And, you know, the policy implications of this are, are I think, pretty important, right? Like, just because you've imposed a sanction, it may feel good <laughs> on, like, a, a personal level to some extent. But that evasion can, the sanctions evasion can create new ties. You look at Russia and Venezuela. Uh, <clears throat> it, you know, the evader sometimes, you know, wants to create their own weapon industry, and that causes their more problems, like spillover effects. So Israel, South Africa, and Chile are have examples where they create their own weapon systems, and now you see proliferation of small arms or other types of systems. And so you have to ask yourself, if you're a policymaker, are these sorts of risks, these diversionary risks and sort of almost network effects, are these really worth it if embargoes are not that effective anyway? Yeah, that, 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 that is a great point. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are Professor Jen Spindle and Dr. Raymond Kuo, and we're discussing arms embargoes. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn about more about Cybersecurity Summit at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Kuo, Jenner, uh, Professor Spindle, we know that whenever there's, and you brought this up, uh, Professor Spindle, whenever there's a product that is, you know, quote-unquote, illegal <laughs> or being sanctioned, 
Uh, there are always ways for buyers to acquire those things, often at a higher price, right? Uh, what can you tell us about the gray and black arms markets around the world? What, what are those two types of markets, and why do they matter for national security? How do they impact these arms embargoes that we're talking about right now? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the black market or the the illicit or illegal market for um, for larger weapons like tanks, airplanes, it is just really difficult. Yeah. Um, you know, you can spot those. And, and even when states try to cover up that they've sold weapons to another state, it often backfires. Um, I remember reading about a deal in 1965, the U.S. wanted to give tanks to Israel, but didn't want to be seen giving tanks to Israel and said, hey, West Germany, you give your tanks to Israel and then we'll just backfill your supply, but don't tell anyone. And everyone said, great, we won't tell anyone. And then a day later, Israel receives tanks from the United States, right? Um, so it's really hard to do the black market with these sort of big um, major conventional weapons. But what you can do is try to find ways to sort of skirt around um, rules or embargoes. Um, you know, I think that states try to find actors who are either just willing to bust through the embargo and say, I don't care, I will do this illegally. Or they'll try to find ways to source um, secondhand arms, right, or find almost like a, a middleman type supplier um, to continue getting access to the weapons that they need. Yeah, I mean, South Africa and in Israel, I think, are, are a great example of countries that, you know, at the time, South Africa was dealing with apartheid. Uh, Israel was seen on the international stage as being something of a prize state. And so they're like, oh, well, we're both on the outs kind of socially in that sense uh, from the rest of the international system. So we might as well start collaborating together. And so in our paper, we, we reference a, a particular book on the arms, arms collaboration between South Africa and Israel, how they're doing this brisk trade in small arms, but also uh uh, heavy, heavy weapons like tanks uh, even got to the point of discussing of uh, missiles that could actually be nuclear capable, uh, which is kind of terrifying from a non-proliferation perspective. Yeah, and South Africa, I think, is the only country that has ever voluntarily given up its nuclear weapons program, which is just a fascinating uh, uh, statement about the government intent uh, in that country. Yeah, although I thought South Korea had done it as well in Taiwan. I hadn't heard either one of those. It's possible, uh, but I know that South Africa definitely uh, did it. Yeah. Uh, what are the other impacts from arm, arms embargoes on, on motivations for nations to get around those embargoes? Uh, what else might nations do to avoid these arms embargoes? Can you, can you give some more examples for our listeners? Sure. So uh, uh, Professor Spindle just mentioned middlemen. Uh, you kind of get something from someone else who already has them uh you know so is that is that by the way is that sort of the gray arms market where you know you might not do business directly with somebody but you do it through a middleman is that gray arms as opposed to smuggling illicit weapons through embargoes that kind of thing yeah absolutely um okay. i mean you know, the uh the u.s itar regime it is pretty leaky right we we tell ourselves to some extent that like okay we will control where the weapons go and then where they go from there but you know <clears throat> Uh, the example I mentioned earlier about the U.S., we we bought Stinger missiles uh, from some Central European country, Austria, Switzerland, something like that, to get them back from Afghanistan, right? Like, okay, we've released these weapons out into the wild, and they can be really hard to track, especially the smaller ones that get closer to 
they're they're man portable, more like a small arm. Um, so middlemen can act as uh, as as, as pass pastors essentially, uh, which are politically useful to give yourself cover or to avoid embarrassment, as the case was with the United States. I think uh, we also cited in the paper a, an example of, I believe. I want to say it was Chile, <clears throat> who was interested in acquiring uh, uh, SAMs, uh, surface air missile systems from the United States, <clears throat> and that we were not allowed to because we were uh, selling to sell because we actually had an active embargo against them. Um, but I believe it was Kissinger, uh, who I have very strong opinions about, who was like, you know what, we can't sell it to you, but the Israelis could sell you their system, and their system might even be better than ours. Uh, this sort of horse trading that's happening. Um, that's not quite an example of like the U.S. actively being a middleman, but sort of, kind of creating that relationship, creating that sort of sale, if you would. Um, <clears throat> another mechanism is to get a substitute, something that's just close enough. Uh, the most recent example that I think is is, is fairly prominent is the S four hundred system. Um, yeah, Turkey usually buys you know American made systems, but in a major turn, it bought the S four hundred anti air system uh, from Russia, and so you know. In a lot of cases, it depends on what the you want the weapons for, right? For most countries, if you need if you need to go against another country, you need higher end tech. Uh, but if you're interested in repressing your own citizens, for example, then the lower end tech is usually fine. Um, <clears throat> you could you just need the armored vehicles or the small arms or the, the the body armor to equip your own forces just to repress your 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 citizens. Uh, if you want a demonstration of patronage, however, you need something really really shiny. And so the degree to which these things are substitutable really is kind of can be kind of tricky. Um, right now, I think that Turkey with the S four hundred system, they're probably less enamored of that system as a as a demonstration of patronage and support. Uh, and then the last mechanism, of course, is that you can just make your own. You know, it may be good for your individual country. You get sort of supply security. It probably is pretty bad for many others. Uh, you can kind of contribute to proliferation even in the non nuclear side. Um, and, you know, conventional arms can cause problems. You know, we mentioned the example of Israel and South Africa several times. Well, you know, that those arms sales did help to prop up the South African regime uh, when it was apartheid, uh, not the best kind of demonstration of responsible sort of global citizenship there. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, you know, so we've got these sort of three buckets of ways that states can try to evade arms embargoes, right? Middlemen, the sort of gray... Um, arms sales. You could try to get this close enough weapons, a substitute mechanism. And then making your own is really hard to do. You know, as Raymond said, it can work for some of these smaller weapons, right? Especially if your goal is just repressing your own citizens, you don't really need the most advanced weapons. But um, India here is a great example of why making your own is really hard. Uh, India has for years been trying to jump from a sort of lower tier, less sophisticated supplier to one that can create much more advanced weapons. It finally succeeded in selling um, domestically produced helicopters to Ecuador, um, and Ecuador sent them back because they kept crashing. So um, even if you have production capacity like Norway, right, it can still take a number of years to sort of make your own and, and have that supply line running. If you're in the position of India where you have not yet successfully made a sort of advanced, sophisticated weapon, I mean, part of me wants to say, why bother? You know, try try to put your efforts into the gray market, right? You might have more success there. Um, so making your own is really, really difficult. Yeah. 
Yeah, the, the higher end weapon systems today are so complex that to sort of get into that uh, into that field if you're starting from scratch, <laughs> that's a that's a that's a tall order, right? It's a tall yes, order. Yes, it is. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are Professor Jen Spindle and Dr. Raymond Quo, and we're discussing arms embargoes. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. So we're into our fourth uh, segment here. we got about 15 minutes left or so for the show. Uh, how many countries are currently under a U.S.-led arms embargo and have those arms embargoes been effective? Yeah, I think there are 17 that are directly embargoed by the United States, and then we have an additional four through um, US, uh, sorry, UN Security Council embargoes. Um, <clears throat> some of these are, embargoes are very much not effective. Um, China, Iran, North Korea, they all do a very lively trade in major systems with each other, or they have their own industries. Um, <clears throat> others, you know, uh, towards the Middle East, Sub-Saharan, Sub-Saharan African countries, sure, they can be effective, but, I mean, the chief concern here is, uh, for many of these countries, is not major weapons, right? It's small arms. Uh, <clears throat> they're really concerned about not whether or not I get a tank or not, but more about what about all these just guns that are just around here killing my people? Um, and, you know, part of the issue is that those guns are really, really durable. The AK-47, I mean, you toss them in a locker, you dip it in mud, and you leave it there for 50 years, you dust it off, and you can still fire. Um, I think even the sort of almost casual use, uh, when I was in Jordan, one issue was uh, what we call Taujiki Day, um, which is where they have the major national exam, and when the grades come out, um, you would, you know, people would start celebrating. Problem is, um, they would celebrate by firing random loose guns into the air, and so Taujiki Day, you would have about eight people or so dying in the city of Amman because bullets come down. <laughs> Um, and just the loose small arms are, even if we were to cut off the small arms supply today completely, many countries just be swimming in those guns, uh, which is a real issue for a lot of these countries. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think a good example of just even how this scales up to the major conventional arms embargoes is, again, the sort of embargo on Saudi Arabia after the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. You know, it, this showed not only how Congress is involved in U.S. decisions to send arms, right? so it's not the sole decision of the president, but the European countries all had to agree. Um, and that's because France, Germany, and the U.K. jointly cooperate on weapons production. Because right? as you said, it's really hard to make these big, expensive systems. And so they all needed to agree to embargo. And France and the U.K. wanted to lift their embargo, but Germany didn't. And so this held up supply for a little bit. But then Germany basically said, okay, we'll have our embargo on paper, but we'll let you sell arms anyway. And so even when you're you know, not talking about these easily sort of hidden and, and durable weapons, right, often these arms embargoes are just very temporary, um, but not sort of strong or, or permanent enough. So even though there are 17 countries under U.S. embargo, you know, I, I think we have real questions about, okay, but are they still getting the stuff that they want? Yeah. I would like to go back to talk briefly again about Turkey. So Turkey, as a NATO ally, uh, one of America's strongest allies, we have an air base at Enserlik. Uh, Turkey was instrumental in the first Gulf War in supporting uh, the coalition's efforts, not so much in the second Gulf War, uh, but still a really important uh, NATO ally, uh, a geostrategic uh, location uh, internationally that is just incomprehensibly important to 
American and European security policy. It's the crossroads between Europe and the Middle East. Uh, choke point for the Russians getting out of the Black Sea. So many things going on with Turkey. Turkey's decision to buy the S-400 triggered sanctions on them, a NATO ally, and we cut them out of the F-35 uh, Joint Strike Fighter program. Uh, <clears throat> they are now waiting for F-16s that we have agreed to sell them instead, uh, which are advanced, but nowhere near where the F-35 is. Uh, is this, we also see the same kind of uh, challenges because India is also talking about buying the S-400 surface air missile system from Russia, and that's going to trigger automatic sanctions on India, a nation that we have been courting since 9-11, because they are the largest democracy in the world, to bring them back into sort of the Western liberal dem democratic fold. Uh, is this, <clears throat> I guess... I guess what, what the question I want to ask is, are there more effective ways uh, to impact other nations' actions rather than arms embargoes? I often bring up the tools of national power on this show, right? I would assume that for the two of you, this, this concept of an arms embargo is a bit of a kind of a, a hard power tool inside diplomacy specifically. It's not a, a military hard power because you're really talking about uh, sanctioning what I would just call uh, commodities, essentially. It's a commodity sanction. Uh, because, well, did your research result in any findings that should maybe educate policymakers on better ways to impact countries without driving them towards creating their own domestic arms market or turning to the gray or black arms market? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and I was actually surprised by our findings on embargoes and the sort of importance of middlemen and, and the gray market and, and substitutions. I guess I perhaps naively thought that they'd be more effective. Um, or at least that states under an embargo would have a harder time getting weapons, right? But as you note, even as Turkey's been kicked out of the F-35 program, the U.S. is still giving it F-16s. So, you know, I think our paper for policymakers really shows a sort of double-edged sword of embargoes. You either have to do it really, really well with lots of states agreeing to the embargo, very hard to do, or else you risk sort of the state trying to either develop its own arms industry, so you lose control, or seek secondhand or middleman weapons on the gray market, so you also lose control. So it's really this difficult balancing of, you know, short versus long-term consequences that I think policymakers really have to weigh, um, you know, especially in cases where these sort of automatic sanctions would, would kick in, like with India and the S-400. Yeah, one thing I, I wonder, and this is just me spitballing here, uh, it's not in the paper, but I wonder the extent to which the findings that we have really are focused for the bulk of the weapon systems, but not the premier ones. <clears throat> um, that, you know, Turkey did suffer a sort of prestige cost for being kicked out of the F-35 program. And sure, it's getting F-16s. They're great weapons um, <clears throat> systems, but they're not the premier status ones. And it really is a demonstration that you are just not as important anymore. Um, also, because the premier systems, there are just so few country suppliers. I mean, you know, it's, you get Lockheed Martin right now, the rest of it, but like there's there American systems or European systems. Uh, right now, I don't think we think that Russian or Chinese systems are anywhere near that class. Uh, because you have such a constricted supplier market, perhaps that does give a certain leverage if you want the premier stuff. But you know, how many countries actually want the premier stuff? Um, can they settle? Can they can they take this sort of status hit and just say, you know what, maybe I'm not your best friend. Uh, I will be good enough on my own and have enough weapons to defend myself, and that's good enough for me. 
Um, and I think you're kind of seeing that with, with Turkey right now, um, that, you know, maybe we're not going to be the, 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 the closest NATO partner. Um, we might be the worst NATO partner, um, <laughs> but we have cut a side deal with the Russians. So our major threat is taken care of and we get to have our own sort of status as the strongest power in the Middle East, for example, uh, that can play all the sides off of each other. And we're happy with that sort of self-perception. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe for policymakers, one of the lessons is the sort of flip side of this substitutability problem that we mentioned, right? So if you get blocked from U.S. weapons, maybe you try to buy French, but maybe within those sort of prestige weapons, suppliers could sort of use that as a way, right? So when Turkey got kicked out of the F-35 program, that was a big deal, right? Yeah. It was sort of no longer part of the elite. Yeah, sure, it's still getting F-16s, right? But I wonder if maybe one of the lessons for policymakers is, you don't necessarily have to have a full-on embargo with lots of agreement. Maybe you knock a state down a tier of weapons. And I think, you know, if, if anyone saw Turkey's F-35 rollout ceremony, which um, included literally a song and dance um, about sort of the history of flight and then, you know, ended with the revealing of the F-35, to then get booted from that program is a pretty significant signal. And so maybe policymakers should actually use that to their advantage and say, okay, you know, we're not going to get global agreement for an arms embargo on whomever, but we can make sure you don't get the shiniest, coolest, most advanced, you know, top tier prestige weapons. Yeah. So there's a couple of things I want to talk about, and then and I'm gonna we have to start uh, moving towards closing out on this show, but. Uh, one of the things that was happening uh, was a ratcheting up of tensions between Turkey and Greece. That was not that was looking for like a very tense situation, and uh, uh, that that could still happen. But I think that that's been tamped down significantly by uh, this terrible earthquake that just happened. At least forty thousand Turkish citizens uh, killed, uh, unknown numbers wounded. Uh, I'm sure that count is going to go much higher before they finally dig everybody's bodies out of the rubble. Uh, so that may have uh, changed the dynamic a little bit between Turkey and Greece. Uh, it may impact the upcoming election where uh, President Erdogan is up for re-election. Uh, there's a lot of finger pointing at him for cutting corners on what happened with the construction codes and quality of construction. Uh, I think a lot of the challenges <clears throat> that we have faced as NATO alliance members with Turkey have been really all around Erdogan and his policies. That has impacted significantly. So shifting over to Iran, <clears throat> just recently the U.S. Navy intercepted a smuggling operation where Iran was sending, I think it was 5,000 small arms and 1.2 million rounds of ammunition and a bunch of other stuff uh, to the Houthi rebels in, in Yemen. And <clears throat> there are some international uh, control regimes that are in place. The United States is trying to figure out how to get around that to take that weapons uh, 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 seizure and just transfer it directly to the Ukrainians, which I think is a phenomenally great idea. Uh, but we have to get around some of the some of the international agreements on what we do when we intercede on on black arms smuggling operations. Any thoughts on on that situation with Iran and uh, the Houthis and and Ukraine? That's that's yes, a... you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a, it's an interesting proposal, right, to sort of take things that were being used in an illicit way, right, and put them to sort of more effective use in an area that really needs the arms. Um, 
especially because we're seeing such production problems because Ukraine is going through weapons so quickly. Mm. And I guess my, like, taking a step back approach would be, in the short term, I totally understand doing that, but I worry about the sort of precedent of trying to sort of change the way that you deal with intercepted, you know, illicit arms. Um, and so, again, sort of balancing the short-term versus longer-term trade-off. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm not an Iran expert by any means, um, <clears throat> but I worry as well. Like, would we want the Chinese doing that to American arms or European arms or that kind of thing? If we set the precedent now, um, they could have a justification for saying, well, look, you know, these are, weapons are going to go to the East Turkestan rebels in Xinjiang. And so it's our turn now to take the weapons and we'll give them to the Russians who are fighting their war of liberation against the Nazi regime in, in Ukraine kind of thing. Right, the rhetoric, yeah, the propaganda. I know it. Uh, so we only have about uh, about six minutes or so left on our show today. I'd like to make sure I always give my guests sort of the last word. Uh, so what thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners on this topic of, uh, of arms embargoes? Uh, anything I should have asked you today that I didn't? Anything that we left out that we really need to cover? Uh, maybe, Raymond, we'll start with you, and then, uh, Jen, you can finish this out. Sure. Um, I mean, I think the main takeaway is that just arms embargoes are really hard to do well. Unless you get all the major suppliers on board, it's 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 not going to happen, or there's going to be leakage in your arm in your embargo regime. Um, you know, we've identified several mechanisms: substitution, uh, building your own weapons, middlemen as ways for embargoed states to get around those sanctions. Uh, and even when the regime is, seems to be relatively uh, airtight or not leaky, you'll get countries like Russia or France who are just like, look, I want to make a big, I make, I want to make a quick buck here, and I can actually make a quicker buck or a bigger buck. Um, because the sanctions are in place. Uh, it's a real prisoner's dilemma. We might all benefit from having these sanctions there, but I individually would benefit from just you know, making a little extra side payments for my, my arms industry. So why not go for it? And even in the least leaky regimes, we still get leakage. Uh, there are ways for countries to get arms. Uh, I think one thing that uh, Dr. Sundal and I discovered was that you know, even though about a quarter of arms that get through an embargo are secondhand, or maybe like 33%, that still leaves two-thirds, if not three-quarters of the arms, being brand-new system, being sent direct to the consumer. Um, and so there's you know, embargoed countries are still getting just the same types of arms, the same composition, even the same quality to some extent, uh, which just means that the, the regimes just are not very effective, unfortunately. Yeah, I think, um, I think we often, when we talk about this project, sort of leave people feeling like they're arms embargo pessimists, you know, like, why do this thing that doesn't work? It sometimes even pushes states to source from a totally different type of supplier, you know, so shift from U.S. weapons to Chinese or Russian-based weapons. So, like, why take the risk? Why do this enterprise at all, right, knowing that arms embargoes are often not very effective? And so I guess one of the things that I... I sort of come back to is, you know, what is the sort of actual purpose of the embargo, right? Is it to actually cut off the supply of weapons? Sometimes, sometimes not. Or is there a sort of broader, right, political security um, sort of dynamic happening where it's this sort of very public announcement of you've done bad. We want everyone to know that we know that you've done bad. Um, and so, you know, maybe we should stop thinking about arms embargoes as 
ways to cut off supplies of arms. Mm-hmm. So clearly not. And more along the lines of ways to express strong disapproval. And I think reframing arms embargoes like that then opens up the toolbox, right? What other ways do you have of expressing strong disapproval? What other ways do you have of sort of indicating you've done bad and we would like you to know that you've done bad? And so maybe we can start to shift the conversation about arms embargoes out of the sort of military, purely military realm, right? And put them in the sort of broader political security context. So it sounds to me, I mean, if I'm picking up on, on what uh, the two of you have been putting down this morning, uh, it, it sounds to me that, that arms embargoes uh, are very much like broader economic sanctions that we try to use, that governments all around the world try to use to influence another government that they're angry at. Uh, for instance, right now, um, mo- most of Europe, uh, many other countries around the world have really strong sanctions across a wide range of uh, areas on Russia. And yet Russia is still having no problem selling oil to India and China and some of the other countries that are out there who are simply just ignoring the rest of the world's sanctions. And I think from what I've heard from the two of you, uh, the same kind of thing happens in the arms embargo uh, regime where you're trying to send a message to other countries and and there are always going to be people who want to take advantage uh, of a changed political dynamic uh, to try and sell arms or smuggle arms or whatever it is they're going to do. Is that, is that a good summary of what we've talked about today? Yeah, so, I think that's a great summary. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, we've just about hit the end of our show today. <laughs> Professor Jen Spindle and Dr. Raymond Quote, thank you both so much for joining us for this hour. Uh, the title of your paper was The Unintended Consequences of Arms Embargo. It was published in Foreign Policy Analysis. Uh, can people just search that on the internet, or where do they have to, where do they have to go to find that? Uh, yes, they can do that. I think I also put it on my website. Oh, I have to double okay. check. And that your actually. website is what? What's your website? No, oh, uh, RaymondQuo.com. And uh, K U O. That's Raymond correct. Quo. So, sorry, that's Raymond right. Uh, any other resources that uh, you want to hire, uh, 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 highlight for our listeners, uh, Professor Spindle? Maybe any any thoughts? Um, I think uh, the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, which, you know, we used a lot of their data, they also produce an annual just short five-page report on what's up with the arms trade um, that I think is a fantastic, very accessible, and, and thankfully free resource um, for anyone who's interested. So that is uh, CIPRI, S-I-P-R-I, dot org. Okay, dot org, dot org. Okay. Well, thank you both. This has been a fantastic discussion. I really appreciate it. Uh, Enjoy the rest of your week and have a great weekend. Thanks so much for having us. Uh, Folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today here on KYMN Radio. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Take care, everyone. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.